welcome to The Divorce Social with me, Samantha Baines, changing the conversation around divorce. This show is sponsored by Penguin in the Room. Penguin in the Room is an award-winning arts, marketing and social media management company. If you want to jazz up your socials and have someone Instagram and tweet for you, then here's your answer. Go to www.penguinintheroom.com. As always, hit subscribe to make sure you're updated about new episodes. And we love to hear from you on social media at DivorcePod and at Samantha Baines. You can also email us all the infos on our website, thedivorcesocial.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I am joined by comedian, writer and speaker, Callie Beaton. Hello. Hello, Samantha Baines. How are you doing? Thanks for my full name. It's always good to use your full (laughs) name. I think you're worth every syllable that you've been awarded. Oh, wow. Thank you. Pleasure. Um, So we know each other from comedy and things like that. We've known each other for a while. And normally I start this podcast by saying, you are divorced. How does that feel? Welcome to the Divorce Club. But you haven't been divorced. You have a slightly different story, which I think is interesting, but you are very welcome in the Divorce Club. I feel I've sort of earned my Divorce Club stripes, despite the D word not exactly applying to me. So do you want to explain your situation? Rather than just leaving it there hanging and people going, well, this is a brilliant episode. Thanks so much. that's the end of the podcast. (laughs) I don't want to spoil the plot for anyone. No, so my story... and. uh, Yes, so so, well, this sort of came about, didn't it? When you you sent me a message saying, "Oh, do you want to be on the divorce chat podcast?" and I said, "But I'm not divorced." Um, And lots of people assume I am divorced because I seem like the sort of person who would be no, because I um, so I've got uh, pretty much adult children now who I've brought up most of their lives as a single parent. So I did split up with their dad um, over 15 years ago. Um, and I was with him for a very long time, but we never actually got married. Um, he's a Dutch man, uh, my kid's dad. And I make a joke on stage saying we never got married because the only thing a Dutch husband will give you that's long and hard is his surname. Hilarious. Uh, but that isn't why I didn't marry him. So we just, neither of us particularly, um, I don't think either of us were much the marrying types. So the weird thing is that when we went through the uh, kind of splitting up, Obviously, by then we had kids, we had a house, we'd been together a long time, our families were merged, Um, luckily our finances weren't merged, 
But it did mean um, that in many ways it was exactly the same as going through a divorce, um, apart from we obviously didn't have to do the paperwork, but there were sort of financial elements to it because we had children to worry about. So we did even end up drawing up a deed of separation um, because we did have some financial aspects, even though legally we could have each just walked away with what was ours. But um, I tried to do something a bit more generous for him because I was the main breadwinner. So, um, so yeah, we did even end up in sort of legal and financial stuff. So oddly, not divorced, but feel as if I went very much through a lot of the process. You may correct me. You may say, no, there's bits you didn't go through because you weren't married. Um, but I feel a bit like a divorcee. I think that's really interesting because I don't know anything about kind of how you separate things if you're not married. I guess when you're married and you break up, obviously it's very hard, but in some ways it's quite straightforward. Like you know that you have to like apply for a divorce and get a solicitor or do it yourself. And you know that there's paperwork and there's kind of a plan of action that you can follow because so many people have done it before and and legally you have to. Whereas I guess if you've been in a long-term relationship and you have everything that a marriage has, um, you just don't have that piece of paper you're sort of left adrift a bit when you break up because you don't have that straightforward process of we need to sign divorce papers. So how did it feel at the time? Did you feel, and and also how, how did it feel when you broke up not being married? And did you feel that people treated you differently in your breakup because it wasn't the breakup of a marriage you ask such good questions you're quite the right person for this podcast I'd like to say for your own podcast yeah very insightful yeah because people don't think of those things to ask so to answer your sort of questions in the order in which you ask them so the in terms of um yeah it's a kind of weird thing I was talking to my now partner who I've been with um about 18 months and he said one of the hardest days of his life was getting his divorce papers through, even though he was the one who left and he wanted to leave. So I haven't gone through that aspect of sort of, I guess, um, to turn into Oprah Winfrey for a minute, that sort of closure that that maybe the piece of paper might or might not bring for people. I don't know, because it's not happened to me. And so in the case of us, um, my ex still lived in the house for uh, for a year. So he lived upstairs in this sort of attic, um, like like a sort of Dutch male Miss, Miss Havisham. And, um, and he was up there for, I mean, he was allowed down to use the loo in the kitchen, I might add. He wasn't like a hostage. <laughs> we were trapping him in the attic. And I was like, you stay in there. Do you see the error of your ways? With some, bring up some bread and water for him to sustain him. And that's it. (laughs) Exactly. So no, he stayed in them. The reason, and it was partly because we had very young children, and it sort of made sense. I was, I was the one with the sort of career and traveling and away a lot for work, and there were some sort of logistical issues, and I wanted the kids to have access to their dad and he's he's great dad you know he was and is a great dad so I kind of wanted that to continue and it suited us financially so he stayed in the attic for a year and then when he moved out weirdly I was talking to my therapist this week about this because I, I wonder sometimes if I've ever quite processed what happened even though it's so long ago because I do remember I was really dying for him to move out because it's pretty hard sharing a house with someone you've split up with um, I really feel for anyone who's in that situation in lockdown and I'm sure there's lots of people who are but then when he left I remember him sort of packing and me helping him pack up and we were still such good friends and we were so close still there was an effortlessness about our relationship and we were trying to take down like a curtain or a blind or something together and we sort of ended up having a right laugh about getting in and not being able to do it 
And I, I just remember realizing this, this is it now. That shorthand's going to go. We're dismantling it as of him leaving today. That is going to go. And oh, I'll get a bit emotional talking about it. And, and I do remember wondering what I was doing and why this man who I still loved, but it just was, it was like brother and sister kind of love. I just remember thinking, I'm just about to lose something monumental. And then I went into this, um, it's funny, your body tells you what your mind doesn't want to hear, doesn't it? And I went into work and my neck just went into spasm. Like I looked behind to say something to somebody, Dave from Office Services, as I recall, and my neck just stayed frozen. I couldn't move my neck back round. And it was like my body had obviously just, I was obviously so tense and so anxious that my body just stopped me in my tracks and was like, you can't just pretend you're all right, you're not all right. So, yes, I remember my friend Charlotte putting, um, taking me down to the cafe downstairs and putting a bag of peas, frozen peas on my neck and putting me in a cab home. So, yeah, I don't know if you get the closure um, quite so clearly when you're not married. I don't know. And the other thing is that people assume, so everyone just assumed we were married. So when, when word got out on the primary school run that we were separating, everyone assumed we'd been married. And interestingly, everyone assumed it was his house and it was very nice of him to let me stay here. It was actually my house to which he'd never contributed a penny, but everybody assumed and everyone's like, it's really nice of him to let you stay in the house. And what do you say to that? You can't, you're not going to go, no, he hasn't paid for anything, you know, cause that's being an arsehole. So I just sort of, um, I, I just got used to that as a comment um, that people just assumed he, he would be the one. Whereas actually I remortgaged the house to give him some money so he could get a flat near enough to look after the kids. It was that way round, which again, you obviously don't say. So, um, so people just assumed we were, I think people just assume when you have kids and you've been together a long time that you're probably married and obviously in many cases they're right. Yeah. So that's very long answers to your two questions. No, but really interesting. And I think I would be really annoyed if people thought it was my ex's house and I would say, actually, it's my house. Um, And you said you can't say that. Why do you think you can't say that? I think it was, well, I mean, I guess the other thing, it it swings and roundabouts, isn't it? Because my kid's stepmom is their primary school teacher. I'll just let that compute for you and your lovely listeners. Whoa. Whoa. Was that after you broke up? Well, interestingly, it absolutely was after. So um, so I won't say, um, I was about to say her name, uh, but I won't say her name because uh, I still call her Miss surname as a sort of, and the kid's like, you don't call her Miss anymore. You could call her by her first name. I'm like, no, no, she'll always be Miss to me. But she's she's actually lovely. She was one of my favourite of their teachers um, and obviously definitely one of their dad's favourite of their teachers. Um, but she was a really good teacher. She was she was their class teacher, each of them. Um, they'd each had her as a class teacher for a year. So we got to know her quite well, some of us more well than others. But um, no, so he, he absolutely... The, his powder was dry. Nothing happened between them until well after we separated. But again, everyone's assumption was that that he left he left me for her, and actually it was me who instigated the separation. So again, I guess people's assumptions were wrong. You know, he was a loser in that story. I was a loser. I mean, I do, by the way, correct people when they when they assume that that he left me for her because that wouldn't. We all still live in the same neighbourhood, and she's still a teacher in the neighbourhood. So it would be very unfair for me to let that fester. Um, but it's funny, isn't it? People just have assumptions about all kinds of things. Um, and and they, my kids have now got um, uh, a little brother. So that, that my ex and his now partner, who, to whom he's also not married, um, have got a little well, seven-year-old son. So my kids have had a little um, brother since they were 13 and 16, respectively. Um, people have said to me over the years, and you've actually been reasonably magnanimous and generous to your kid's dad, which he would probably go, not at all. But really, the only thing I thought about 
in someone said to me quite early on, um, this was someone who was divorced. She said, don't worry about what's right or wrong or what's fair or unfair. Just work out what it is you think your ex can do that you need him to do in regards to the kids and just focus on that and let all the rest go so that really enabled me to try and let go of any financial resentment that I might have had and it just helped me have a bit of a steer as to what to focus on so with quite young children who obviously it was really unfair on them that we separated you know and I still feel huge guilt to this day but it wasn't any kind of generosity of spirit I'm not sort of an amazingly altruistic ex I just wanted my kids to be okay so that's what determined the financial settlement. That's what determined us all going to school events together, you know, me, him and his, um, you know, his now partner, because we just, I just wanted the kids to be okay. And it, to me, it was a bit of a no brainer that that trumped any other concerns. So that was a bit of a leveler um, and any sort of vitriol that might have been got diluted by trying to be a decent mum, you know. And So you said you still feel tremendous guilt about separating for the kids do you think it was bad for them that you separated or do you think them growing up in a household with two people who aren't happy together would have been worse it's sort of it's a bit like what my current partner said I say current like I'm about to trade him in but my now partner said about you can't win because absolutely bringing up the kids you know we, we we were very much as I say sort of brother and sister for a long time before the end and and so they didn't see us sort of in a tactile, intimate relationship in any way. And I do remember thinking, this isn't right for me, but it isn't right for them to think this is what couples do. But I remember saying we we had um, couples counselling for about a year before we decided to separate and then about another year or 18 months afterwards. And the afterwards bit was to help us navigate largely how to rebuild two households for the kids. So we committed to that sort of, um, which I think is a really good thing to do as a couple. Some people listening will be like, I'd rather have all my teeth pulled out without an anaesthetic. But us carrying on in couples (laughs) therapy was was quite a good idea for us. And um, I remember saying the day that we arrived at the therapy and said to the therapist, you know, we're separating. And I just said to her, she knew it was me who'd instigated it. And I said, I just really want the kids to be all right now. And she said, well, they won't be all right. And I was like, cheers, mate. And But what she meant was, and she was quite right, um, kids never do get over that, whether you like that or not. And anyone who's going through it now, I really apologise if this sounds pessimistic. There are wins as well. But the fact of the matter is, it'll have a phenomenally impactful effect on your children it just will and my little one uh, she was three uh, at the time it happened sort of coped better with it than my older one who was six and he really you know life really went a bit off the rails for him he really properly regressed in lots of ways and had some real proper problems because of it and I think to this day we did him no favors with it but in answer to your question can you stay with somebody staying with someone for the sake of the kids I think we all know is probably a bit of a mugs game. So it takes a lot of courage to stay and it takes a lot of courage to leave. But I think that's that's not, you know, I, I know I'm talking a lot about being a mum and having kids. This is in no way me saying that when you've got kids, it sort of trumps the pain and difficulty of not having kids. I'm not saying that at all. It's just in my case, the kids were quite pivotal to a lot of the decisions. But yeah, I feel, I, I feel if anything, slightly increasing guilt as they've got older, even though my two children seem really capable of very sound grounded relationships they've both shown immense self-esteem and sanity in the face of adult relationships that I only aspire to um they've even said to me it's funny isn't it mum you know you're the only one who can't hold down a relationship in the house I'm like yeah it's hilarious so (laughs) 
Oh, your kids sound very honest. <laughs> oh, they're very, that's the Dutch in them. Um, so yeah, it's, it's. I mean, I don't know, lots of people listen, are your parents, if you don't mind me asking, are your parents still together or were they together when you were growing up? Yeah, so my parents, so my dad's dead now, so my parents were together and then they separated when I was just left uni, I think. Because that's the other classic um, manoeuvre, isn't it, to wait until the kids are a bit old and how because I've heard that that can be just as upsetting as the little kids parents splitting up I don't know how it was for you I mean it was a bit of a shock at the time but I think everyone knew that they weren't happy and we could see that for years so we never thought of them as as you know being in a happy healthy marriage um so I think actually I don't want to speak for my sister but I think we were pleased when they separated because in the end, they both were happier separately. Um, but then when my dad was really ill before he died, you know, my mum was there all the time and helping us look after him. And so they were, you know, they were still friends and they still saw each other all the time because of everything they'd been through together. But I, I think I had a very positive, they didn't actually get divorced because um, then my dad got ill and he wanted my mum to have his her widow's pension um yeah but it's but they did talk about it and if he was still well I think they would have got divorced and I think so for me that was quite a positive thing their breakup because it made them both happier and I could see that they weren't happy you were mature enough I guess to be able to rationalize that so I think it's um when you think about the history that your mum and dad would have had after those many more years I mean I was with my kid's dad for well over a decade and I didn't realize until you know now the best part of two decades on much as he wasn't the right person for me and probably vice versa I think I see him with his now partner and they're much much better suited and we all joke at our blended family Christmas lunches and stuff because we do do all that stuff um we, we all sort of joke about the fact that like his now partner can't imagine that we were ever together because we're so so different and she's right you know she's not being nasty it's sort of said in totally good spirits she's comp- I don't know how we were together but equally we had those really formative years together and we did have I'd say a decade of them really happy. And I didn't realise until now how blooming hard it is to find someone you'd be happy with for a decade. I've never found anyone since that I've been happy with for a decade. So I didn't, I really didn't value what I had. It still wouldn't have changed my decision, but I had no idea how precious the thing I had was. And I don't think, and again, this is getting a bit existential, like we haven't got enough gloom and doom in the world, but I don't think to my grave I will have that quality of a relationship with someone in that way. I may have something that functions much better all round, but there was something he and I had at a time in my life that he and I had it that was enormously precious. So I know this probably sounds conflicting, like I'm sort of going, oh, and I actually regret not being with him, and I don't. But you cannot regret the decision while having enormous grief for the thing you've lost, if that makes sense. I don't, I don't know if that if there's any echoes for other people listening with that. I mean, definitely for me, I think... I was so in love with my ex when we first got together and when we were together and we had such brilliant times. It also was dysfunctional for a load of reasons, but that doesn't mean we weren't like ecstatically happy and in love you did for seem a really to be. amazing. Yeah, I did because again, you've talked about this, I'm sure, a lot on the podcast, but you did seem, you did, it's the classic thing, isn't it? Like everyone said this when Ed and I spoke, oh, you seem like the perfect couple. I bet everyone said that to you, didn't they? Yeah, they did because when it was good, it was amazing. Mm. But then very practically, you know, we weren't, we weren't right for each other. So it didn't work in all those 
little ways that I guess people on the outside don't see because they just see that you're in love and you're happy mm. together. And and then obviously things break down over time. But yeah, I, I do think that's really interesting. I think it's really nice that you can look back at your relationship and think that, that it was, you know, so precious and a wonderful time. And, and I think it's, I, a lot of people I've spoken to on the podcast have found love again. And I think one of the weird things about losing a long-term relationship, especially if you had that intense love, is that you think I'm never going to find that again. And I think you're right. I think you 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 probably will, but it will be just a very different type and style of it and maybe better for everyone involved. Or at least better functioning, because there's something about, isn't there? And I wonder if all these bits are mutually exclusive or not, but that sort of giddy kipper thing you have with some people where you just absolutely, the thing that you and your husband sort of exuded to the outside world, and you can see it and feel it a mile off when couples have that. And it is real, you know, what you were showing all of us, I'm sure was completely authentic, but it was one part of the story. Um, and so as it is for everybody, we never know what's going on in someone else's relationship. And I do wonder if there's a different, you know, my partner now, I'm 51, he's 59. So it's taken us a bloody long time, you know, to, to meet, you know, to, it took us 110 years between us to work this shit out, which is by anyone's standards, slow learners. Um, but we definitely are both, We I can really see now I'm with him the stuff that I just wasn't able to do in a relationship and wasn't willing to compromise on and wasn't aware enough of. And same for him. And we are, you know, we, we both feel inclined to make much more of an effort, not because this relationship is effortful. In many ways, it's effortless. You know, falling in love with him has been completely effortless. But we're actually willing to sort of build this thing up from the ground up a bit and not kid ourselves about things. And I think we've both had so many wrong turns in relationships. We're trying to do this, no, not properly. That sounds really smug, but we're we're willing to put the graft in as well and compromise. I don't think either of us ever really thought we should have to compromise before, and it still is hard because you know I am always right, and he hasn't realised that yet. But he's getting there. Um, <laughs> but no, but, but seriously, uh, it is um, it's a different type of love and a different type of relationship. But I almost feel like it's taken me to this age to have a grown up relationship. I think I was always a bit giddy rom-com and that's kind of what I thought a good relationship was like loads of sex and loads of fun and, and and looking good together and doing stuff together and that of course is all really important but what about all the other stuff you know so um so yeah I, I think you're right I think there is a different quality of it but definitely that that, that feeling when when you lose somebody tr- being able to differentiate what's the bit where you're feeling I just really don't want to be on my own and I'm scared I'm going to be on my own vis-a-vis what you've actually lost and whether you're willing to have lost it. They're quite separate things. And I think you almost, if if you could say to everyone going through divorce, I promise you within three years or five years, you'll look at yourself and you'll be with someone you really are into and life's going to be okay. If you could show them a little video of that, I do often think the pain in the short term would be a lot less, but obviously no, there are no guarantees, but it's highly unlikely you or me or anyone listening isn't going to find someone again because, you know, people do one way or another, don't they? Yeah. And I think someone said to me as well, you know, I'm, I'm 33 now and I've gone 33 years and I found love for, and I was with him for nearly 10 of those. So the rest of my life, and and for a lot of that time, I was a child and not actually looking. So for the rest of my life, it would be strange, you know, if hopefully I've got another 30 years at least in me. Um, 
it would be strange if I didn't find someone else in the next 30 years. And I was like, when you put it like that, like almost like a maths equation, yeah, <laughs> it, it just makes more sense. It makes me feel better because I think when I've been going through stuff and in my saddest moments, it is that, oh my God, I'm going to be on my own forever. And, uh, you know, I'm never going to find anyone again and no one's ever going to love me like that again. And then other times I'm like, I'm fine being on my own and I can do it and I'm happy and I don't need anyone else. But like, it is those sad times when you're like, I'm never going to be with someone again. So I think seeing it as a maths equation. (laughs) I love the fact that you've always been very good with the maths and the science. It is very much what we cut. We love the fact that you have a very high functioning left and right brain. Most of us have to choose, (laughs) and you have both, which is one of the many things that makes us realize that's why you were doing so well in comedy. And I was a nobody when we met (laughs) because you've got both. But is it, um, it's interesting when you, because you were with your husband age-wise virtually the same as I was with Ed so um virtually exactly the same ages um and it is I don't know if you felt this but I I felt that I was you know when you when you are 23 you think you're really grown up but you know my son's 23 now and as a mum of a 23 year old I think god I can't believe I was with his dad and about to enter into sort of a proper long-term living together getting married um getting married having kids relationship but do you think I wonder if sometimes the pain of it, it's almost like you get spat out the other side of this long-term intimate relationship, having grown up in it. And now you're suddenly out the other side and you're like, wow, am I growing up? My turning into an adult was with this person. And now I am an adult and they're not here. And, and that's got a specific sort of resonance, do you think? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think because... I got with my ex at a similar age. It's like your 20s when you're normally out doing stupid things and making mistakes and, you know, drinking too much the night before you you have an essay due in at uni or, you know, whatever it is. And, and to be in like a really solid relationship at that time was amazing then. But now I think, oh, I didn't do all of those exploring me and what I want and and also me sexually and what I like and all of that because you're just with one person um did you find that how was dating for you when you broke up because I had a bit of a sexual I've spoken about this many times on the podcast I had a bit of a sexual explosion and um had a lot of sex which was very we fun. love a sexual explosion um, never a bad time for a se- well maybe a pandemic's a bad time for a sexual yeah. explosion but you presume you had it pre-lockdown yeah, yes. pre-lockdown. Um, did you? How did you find dating? Did you go out there and start shagging everyone like I did? Well, I had two small children of whom I was the primary carer. So a sexual explosion uh, is slightly um, harder to orchestrate, just logistically. It's not that I didn't have the spirit for one and that I don't doff my hat, my cap to those people who managed to. So yes, it was more of a, um, a practical concern. So I almost immediately went into uh, quite a serious relationship with someone I knew through work, um, the classic. Uh, so I was actually his agent. I agented his production company at the time I worked in television. Um, so I, I'd known him for quite a long time and he'd been with someone and I'd been with someone and there'd always been probably a bit of a frisson, but we were both with other people. And it was just really complicated because obviously I could never bring him to the house because not only were my kids here, but my kid's dad was still here. <laughs> so I used to have to go to his place. So I would go to his place. I hope if my kids ever listen to this, they won't hate me for saying this. But I used to go to his place and I had like crazy 
busy night. So I'd go and we'd, and I'd, you know, I'd, I'd, you know, we'd, we'd sort of drink loads and smoke weed and have loads of sex. And, and then I'd still have to be home by morning. So then I'd get like, get a cab back, get home for like six in the morning, have a quick shower. And then the kids would get off school and I'd take them to school and in their world book day costumes and, you know, talk to people in the school and go to work. Um, And I did that probably once or twice a week. And, and of course then my kids' dads, was here so he was asleep he knew I'd gone out for the evening so he'd be asleep in the attic so I I could go away for half the night and I wasn't putting my children at risk or anything so I had sort of um so I had that relationship which went on for quite a lot that was about two years I was with him and then my so if you think if you think you might be late to the sexual explosion party um my real sort of um good times have all happened since my kids have been much older so it's probably been in my 40s yeah in, in my 40s that I've had the sort of um much more yeah kind of out there and and I have to say in my 40s I, I wrote an article for the Guardian which they gave the they gave the headline um I'm hotter now than I've ever yes I'm menopausal but I'm hotter now than I've ever been which obviously was a hilarious hot flushes pun I did the article did not say I think I'm hot because I don't but I know I was not hot in my 20s so relative to my peer group I was not hot in my 20s I was not a sort of sought after kind of a a woman and then as time went on I kind of found my feet a bit more and I started to stand out a bit more among my peers. I don't know why, probably because I had more self-esteem. I guess I still look, you know, similar, you know, uh, you know, as, as good or bad as a ginger middle-aged woman can look, but I just felt more confident. So, so I had that time in my forties when my, and by then my kids were sort of teenagers and I could go out more. Um, so yeah, but I mean, there's, there's, there's a kind of, um, I think fair play to men or women or people who identify as neither, whoever goes out and does whatever they need to do after a break up I think it's kind of game on it's self-care isn't it do what I mean if you're putting yourself at risk it's not but as long as you're doing it in a not a self-sabotaging way with your eyes wide awake at the wheel good on you I mean how did you find your sexual explosion I thoroughly enjoyed you had a little myself. twinkle in the eye <laughs> listeners won't be able to see it but I saw a little twinkle when you talked of your sexual explosion yeah I had a great time I mean obviously yeah don't put yourself at risk use protection everyone should be consenting but yeah, I had fun and I think it was, you know, I lost my self-esteem like you um, were talking about when you were younger, you had no self-esteem. I feel like I had so much self-esteem in my 20s and then at the end of my relationship, it was at an all-time low for so many reasons. You know, my anxiety had picked up as well as obviously the marriage breaking down. And I think just for me to like go out again and you know, even like going for drinks with friends with a nice top on, like just made me feel um, more me again and more kind of sexy. And, you know, even if it wasn't a sexual exploit, you know, it still really just helped my confidence to just like get out in the world again and see friends and socialize, which I think I'd with my anxiety and everything going on in my relationship, I was doing much, much less of, and I was staying indoors. And, and so I think it was all part of me, like coming back into the world that I was like, Oh, there's people and I find them attractive. And some of them find me attractive and they want to have sex with me. And it was like, it was like, I was, I'd been locked away in your attic and I'd burst free. It would have been very busy up there. I can't tell you how many bodies there are up there. Oh, and then all the other exes. (laughs) Is it, um, it's funny though also, don't you think that, um, and again, I don't know where you were as a teenager and and a woman in your 20s in terms of sort of fitting the kind of, beauty myth, you know, what, what it is women are supposed to look like to be hot or to be sought after. 
So I can only speak for myself in that. But as someone who did not fit that mold, you know, I was much, I was quite um, quite overweight in my early twenties. I lost four stone in my early twenties. Um, so again, people who know me now don't think of me as overweight, but I was during my kind of formative years. And I sort of almost think there's really it's quite hard to have self-esteem as a woman in a world that judges women by standards that we can't all meet physically so then people who've got incredible qualities so um and I should say I'm sure people know what you look like that you you look amazing as well but as but all the other things you have as well as looking amazing you know the talent you have the sort of the fact you do stuff like launch a podcast in a lockdown every time I've met you you've been doing lots of incredible things that lots of us talk about we don't all manage to do and that should really be what counts for something in terms of what you feel like about yourself and and how anyone you might want to sleep with or have a relationship should feel about you. And I wonder if that gets more possible as you get older, where the expectations to look a certain way change a bit as we get into our 30s, 40s, 50s. There's slightly less pressure to look exactly the way you should you know, when I look at my daughter, who's 20, who looks incredible and has an incredible figure and she still, she looks at other people on Instagram. She's like, oh my God, look, I've got a really, my waist's not small enough or my this isn't. I'm like, sweetheart, you're going to look back at how you look now when you're my age and go, I should have been wearing my bikini to the bloody supermarket, you know, so, but you never know it when you've, <laughs> you never know it when you've got it. So I do wonder if, um, yeah, if all the other things we have that make us attractive, i.e. the non-physical things, if they're allowed into sharper um, sort of focus as we get older or whether it's what we feel about them I don't know what do you think about about that long ramble um no uh, thank you for the compliments and also I wanted to say before you are hot when oh, you were like babe. oh I'm a middle-aged ginger woman <laughs> I'm Callie Beaton I mean google her and look at an image she's a fitty um, if you're trying to hit on me this is a very public risky way to do it Samantha Baines but fair play to you <laughs> always <laughs> I don't know. I think in my twenties, I was I was very confident in my abilities more than my personality, uh, more than my looks. Weirdly, so I remember I went to a bar um, when I was at university and I was single, and a guy said to me, "You're not fit, but I want to bend you over and fuck you." Oh, what a delightful sentence. We've all, I'd love my daughter to hear that sentence one day. What a lovely dream for every woman. What a dreamy guy. So I had sex with him. No, I didn't. I didn't. I walked away. (laughs) But what, what he was saying, I think very inadequately, is that I was sexy, even if I wasn't stereotypically the thing looks wise of the time that you should have Mm -hmm. been. And weirdly at that time like it obviously it bothered me because it wasn't a nice thing to say but I I really liked the idea in my 20s that I wasn't the norm of pretty Mm -hmm. and that I was a bit different and that I was sexy Mm -hmm. and that I had a lot of talent and I felt quite confident in that when I look back I'm like oh my god she was a crazy overconfident lady. Do you think you were overconfident but, you know, though? Because I think that's I I think that's a lovely way to I would love to think that the women coming up sort of through the ready to pop the question? The jewelers at Bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details generations younger than us might spend their 20s thinking yeah you know I own my shit and yeah I may not look like everyone does on Instagram but I'm sexy and I'm talent I think that's a that's an awesome way to feel isn't it yeah I think it well it felt great at the time obviously I didn't have Instagram then it wasn't really around so there wasn't obviously there were magazines and all of that but there wasn't that direct comparison I mean I remember going to a ball you know at uni and wearing a dress and not feeling like it looked amazing and, and feeling worried about that compared to other people. But I I was very confident in my personality and I knew that I could charm men, which, you know, I was into at the time, <laughs> the men, um, and I could charm 
I mean, now I'm into whatever, mm. whatever floats It's got to be boat. a very broad but church think, at a certain point, I think. Yeah. Um, but I, I knew I could charm people and I knew I was a good flirt and I knew I was interesting. And I think that's always sort of stood me in good stead. And I think weirdly, as I've got older, I've become more worried about my uh, appearance. And I think also it's it's being a bit in the public eye like mm-hmm. you know we've both done a bit of telly and that sort of stuff um we're not the uh Catherine Zeta Jones famous people of the world but you know people see photos of us and things um I think that's been a weird process for me because then it becomes about what other people see and comments that they make and you have to deal with all of that as well as just how you feel um and I've always actually been excited for when I'm really old and I look decrepit because being a comedian I think I'm quite funny um because other people have laughed which at is me. a good quality so to I, have whatever they say I, I say that's a good comedic quality and um and it and it means that when I'm older I'll hopefully still be funny so I'll still have the chat um so I'm looking forward to dating like in my late 80s um because I think you know my personality hopefully will still be there but yeah I weirdly have become more concerned with how I look, especially during my marriage, strangely, like I was very obsessed at some points with, you know, what clothes I should wear and if I was putting on weight and what I've really enjoyed about the, the breakup and separation and divorce is like coming back to me again and, and being like, do you know what? I am actually quite good like as a person. And, and I think someone would be lucky to be with me and, and sort of getting back to that like confidence of my twenties has been quite fun. And also just coming to terms with the fact that my body's changed and, you know, bits are jiggly and bigger than they were before, but that's okay. And people still find that sexy. Also, there'll always be, I think if you look at, if you look at the sort of different ages, so, you know, that you'll look back at what your body's like now at a certain point and be like, God, I should have really loved my body then. And so obviously there is only one direction that our bodies go, even if we end up, you know, being like the sort of superstar great, you know, Jennifer Aniston looking, you know, I think she's my age, depressingly, and she's got an incredible figure, but everything will be changing to some degree, even with people who look like that at the Oscars, you know, some stuff's changing underneath it all. And I just sort of think it's somehow to give ourselves permission. I'm very aware of that now at my age that I'm, you know, I can still run. I still got my gym kit on now, just doing my Pilates. But I just think, you know, do you know what? Yes, I, in some ways do look like a 51 year old woman, whatever that is. And in some ways I probably look younger and I dress a bit younger. I don't know but it's almost like trying to inhabit the bit we've got while we've still got it rather than thinking but why am I not like that and why is my ass gone a bit further south and why are my boobs not looking quite as great without a bra it's kind of like well they're only going to look worse as time goes by but actually maybe maybe the per- well definitely the person who's I always think nowadays I'm sort of much more confident sexually than I would be like in a swimming costume so if I if you said to me, well, let's go to a spa day and we'll wear our bikinis, I would feel quite self-conscious in front of you in a bikini. But if I was with a hot guy back at my house and I took my clothes off, I'd be like, you better be bloody grateful by the time you get to this point. 
as I should with you. You know, by the time you're sleeping with somebody, you're done well. I remember a guy saying to me, I've always had a bit of a tummy, even before I had kids. Now I blame it on my kids. I'm like, oh, but I had 10 pound babies. But I'm like, but if you saw me at 16, I still had this tummy. But I remember a bloke that I had, um, I don't think I did actually sleep with him, but I had a sort of an almost sleeping with him encounter when I was probably 17 or something. Um, And I should say not like a first important one, just a sort of random guy that I went back after a party with. And I remember him saying to me, he pulled my sort of tight, my my skin tight jeans down, which in those days weren't made of stretch material in the 80s. You just sewed the seams up and it took you about a whole weekend to get them off. So he was like wrestling me out of these jeans. And then obviously my tummy unveiled itself. And he went, Jesus, what's all this? And it was so upsetting for, and it was, I did have a tummy at that age, which most girls that age don't have. And it really upset me. And then I remember my daughter saying when she was about three and I got out of the bath, she was sitting talking to me while I had a bath. I got out of the bath. She said, mommy, I love you so much, even with your big fat tummy. Um, and by then I could sort of, by then I could sort of laugh also because it's obviously it was my daughter and she was cute. And now I think, do you know what? Yes, I have got a tummy and I have had two kids and I am the age I am and fuck it. If you want to be, do you know what I mean? Like if you've got a problem with that, then don't be with me. So I think there's, there's a way of cutting the cake in terms of how we feel about ourselves physically that is quite empowering, but it isn't, you know, that the, the sort of theory of, oh, I don't care what I look like now because I'm this age, I just couldn't care less. It's like, I do absolutely care. Maybe I care more than I should, but I also probably have a bit of self-esteem thrown in. Yeah, all these discussions about weight are really interesting. And I do think come into that self-esteem and when you're getting through a breakup and when you're kind of getting back to you and getting older as well. And I just wanted to go back to the marriage issue I'm going to call it that when you broke up everyone just assumed you were married um and marriage you said earlier was never something you'd really thought of in your relationship why wasn't it something you thought of did you have a bad idea of it and did it annoy you that people assumed you were married it's funny that the kind of why I it's weird because I haven't got a strong opinion about why marriage isn't isn't sort of something I would do. And it's not something I sort of think, why is anyone buying into that institution? I'm not cynical about anyone else being married. It was just something I never, interestingly, neither my brother nor I got have got married. You know, he's two years older than me. So weirdly, my parents have only got two children. They've been married since 1966 um, and are still together. And neither of their children have got married, um, even though we've obviously both had long-term relationships. Um, and... I don't know. I just, I mean, I, I did um, just never came up. We just, neither of us were sort of, it just was not on the radar and it didn't occur to us. I got pregnant um, without entirely planning to. And um, that again, didn't occur to me that, oh, we better get married because I'm having a baby. It just didn't occur to me. And then probably a couple of my subsequent relationships in my thirties, I probably slightly thought about marriage Um I think possibly I was just looking for a sort of anchor and some roots and branches, but I didn't really, I mean, a couple of people have proposed to me, or I think three, yeah, three men have proposed to me in my life. Um, none of whom did I say yes to, not because I wasn't into them at the time. So it just was never, it just never felt like something I would do. And, and being really honest, this sounds terrible now, but um, I've, you know, had a reasonably successful kind of career in as, as a business person in telly. And I'm lucky that I've got, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, God, the pandemic's hit me as hard as anyone financially, and I'm not exactly earning a 
bunch of money now, but I'm okay financially. And now the thought that my, my most painful breakup I've ever had was one I had when I was 40, it was on my 44th birthday. And my then boyfriend of three years just upped and left with no explanation, said he didn't love me enough, didn't want me enough, left that day and I never, ever saw him again. Um, and that was the most scarring breakup I've ever had, not because of who he was, but because of how he did that. And he had proposed to me not very long before he left. And that was nothing to do with why he left. He, he obviously, well, I now know why he left because he was, he was, um, I won't say anything that he could, uh, well, I haven't said who he is, so I can say what I like. He was basically shagging someone in the office uh, who he then went off with. Uh, so that's why he changed his mind. Um, uh, someone who was 20 years younger than me. But anyway, uh, he, so when he left, I remember thinking, thank God we're not married because if, if he'd left exactly like that and we were married, he'd have half my blooming house now. And I had more assets than he did. And I remember thinking, oh my God, how would I get through this if I also had to sell my house? There's no way I'd marry somebody now and potentially lose half of everything I've worked my whole life to have. Um, I just wouldn't do it. So it started as a sort of something I just felt um, apathetic about, I guess. And now it's become just purely practical financial. I hear that prenups are fairly unreliable and I just wouldn't say, so, yeah, there's no way I'd do it now. But I do think when, when you say you haven't been married, some people sort of mistake that for I've not been able to have a serious relationship. So people can be like, oh, you never got married. A bit like, oh, and it's kind of like, well, no, I. it's just like you can be single and people are like, oh, you'll meet someone. And you might be thinking, actually, I'm loving being single. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I know I'll meet someone, but I don't want to meet them yet. So I think, I think assumptions about people and anything that underestimates people is a risky thing, isn't it? And none of us should be underestimated. We've all got a huge amount of value and worth and and we've all got our own stories and we don't need anyone judging us by a body type or a social, you know, assumption. I, I, it's just, I wish that... I wish that shit didn't happen, especially in 2020, where we should all be terribly modern by now, shouldn't we? Well, we should. We try. <laughs> we do try. But I would like to do a big, we're not getting married, but we fucking love each other sort of a do. So have the do, but without the wedding. Because I think there is something, people say one of the lovely things about a wedding is you get to sort of declare your commitment and love to each other in front of all your mates. And I think, yeah, that is totally awesome. Totally down with that. So then I think we, I could do all that without the actual legal bit. So we could, and without the religious bit, so we could just do a, we mean it, you know, we mean it, we're in it. We, we want you all to know that. So I do see the appeal of that, definitely. And I'd love to think, I would love to think one day I'll do that. Um, that, is an, that is an aspiration. I love that. We mean it. Party. Yeah, we mean it, but we're not getting married. Yeah, yeah. That's great. I Yeah, because if you could still have the wedding and still have the ring. Yeah. I'd, I'd do that. I don't need the piece no. of paper. I don't need the legal Exactly. Bit. You just get all the wedding with a fraction of the cost and none of the legal hassle should it go south. So, yeah, I do think that's – so that's something that I – maybe I can make that thing. Maybe people listening will be like, that's going to be a thing now. The we, the we mean yeah. it above a pub sort of a do <laughs> once we're allowed into a into a pub um, en masse again. So, yeah. Do you think um, – yeah. I, was, I was just going to ask you a question about vulnerability, and you've probably talked about it before, and obviously Brené Brown has called the market on vulnerability so I'm not trying to get in on her patch but um do you think that sometimes that sort of whatever it was you had in your 20s that felt like self-esteem and confidence and you sort of almost called it overconfidence do you think that there's something about being able to sort of be vulnerable and have that confidence you know because the two are all true um do you think that that's the sort of thing that comes with age a willingness to accept your that your chinks in the armor might be all right and that maybe you're all right to show them to people 
and still be attractive or maybe be even more attractive? Yeah, I don't know. I str- I do struggle with vulnerability. I always have, I think, and I do still now. Like it takes quite a lot for me to be vulnerable with new people, whether that's in a romantic relationship or even like a new friend. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think because of what I do for a job and all of those things, I sort of feel like performer Sam. I'm okay a lot of the time. And so actually, and and also I think when you're a strong woman and and you'll know this, like you have a, a brilliant career, you, you are the main breadwinner in your relationship. You know, I think people assume that you're just great and all right and fine um, a lot of the time. And so I used to feel that when showing vulnerability, I was like letting them down of their image of like great me. Um, I I am trying to, I mean, I I see a counsellor and it's definitely something I'm trying to get better at. And I think I'm definitely there with my friendships and Mm. it's brought, you know, brilliant new levels to loads of my friendships of just like being honest and saying, you know, the, the really vulnerable stuff, not the just, I'd feel a bit shit today. You know, the really sort of dark vulnerable moments, um, is actually lovely to be able to share that with people. Cause it gives people an in, doesn't it? I, I do think it's funny because when I, I, um, when you were asking how to introduce me and I said, well, make sure you put speaker on there. Cause that's how I make a living. And I do make a living as, as you know, as a sort of, um, motivational speaker makes me sound like I'm, you know, in the office, but I do, I meant to sort of inspire people on stages. And I remember this was a real revelation to me that when I was in my forties and that guy had just left me. And at the time I was at, um, at MTV, I had an executive assistant. I was a sort of senior person and she'd got me to go and do the keynote at the PA conference. It was at the Excel Centre or somewhere. There were like about 5,000 PAs and I was the sort of keynote address at the champagne breakfast. And he left me the day before. So I remember getting in the car to do this and she wanted me to do it. And it was her thing, that PA club. And she was one of the people on the steering committee and she was going to join me on the stage for the panel. And I really didn't want to let her down. She was and still is one of the most important people in my life. And so we got in the car on the way to the venue and I told her what had happened. And I said, I'm going to really try and do this, but I, but I don't know if I can. And then I stood up on stage and I don't know what possessed me. But the first thing I said was, I said, and I was looking nice and everyone had their champagne. And I said, you know, I'm standing up here and I look, you know, I'm all suited and booted and I'm making this all effortless. But I just need you to know that I've spent all night crying into my pillow and I may or may not be able to get through this speech. I just need you to know that. And then I did the speech and it went really well. And I was like, what a dick. Why did I say that? But the interesting bit was that after, Afterwards, I have never had a better response to any speech I have ever done than that one. And people all commented on the vulnerability and they said, you know, it's so alienating to have someone on stage who just looks awe-inspiringly successful. And you just let us, you let us have a glimpse behind the kind of curtain. And now in all the, you know, and I in normal times I do 20, 30 big keynotes a year. And nowadays, I always start with a tale of fallibility. So I always start with something. And I've got a few different ones that highlight it really well for me, you know, why I don't feel like I belong and why I am vulnerable. I always start with a story that is about me not being successful and not belonging, because I think it's really important for people to know that a lot of effort goes into making things look as effortless as we do. And I do think it's, um, I still grapple with vulnerability as well, but I think it's an extremely attractive quality actually I think it gives people a way in and it takes a lot of pressure off when we're going through something like this to know that actually it's it's more than okay to be vulnerable it's sort of welcome to people I don't know if your friends found it a welcome 
quality in you now that you can show it more in your friendships? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like also because our job as comedians is kind of being vulnerable on stage. But yeah, that's true. It's interesting because we're talking and it's like this podcast, like we're talking about vulnerable things. And I'm definitely an oversharer. Like I always tell people everything, you know, that's going on. But I guess talking about it in this way of like, I'm framing my vulnerability in a podcast mm. to help to help other people mm. makes me feel less vulnerable about sharing the vulnerability. You're curating and in comedy, your vulnerability, I guess, as you are in comedy. Yeah. Yeah. And in comedy, I'm making it a joke so people can relate to it and laugh about it. But that makes it feel like it's okay to be vulnerable. And I guess a lot of the time I'm I'm constantly trying to like turn my vulnerabilities into strengths. Like when I got diagnosed with hearing loss and a hearing aid, that was one of the most vulnerable, along with my divorce and my dad dying, one of the most vulnerable times in my life. And I felt completely lost and, and all of those things. But you wrote some bloody good um, stand-up about it because I saw it. Yeah. Yeah, but then I tried to turn it into something. So I started writing about it and I wrote my children's book about a little girl with a hearing aid and I became ambassador for hearing loss charities. And I get, I don't know if that's me feeling uncomfortable with feeling vulnerable, so I have to do something proactive to make me feel less vulnerable. But um, yeah, it's definitely an interesting question. And I because I, I think a lot of people who listen to the podcast and email me, you know, they say thank you so much for your honesty or thank you for sh- for being vulnerable and sharing it. Um, and I think that's really interesting because to me, this doesn't seem like me being vulnerable. But I guess even, I mean, I suppose one of the things you do by putting stuff like this on the table and talking to people about it is, I guess what it is doing is giving people permission to be all the different variations of themselves because the you that was going out when you recently got divorced or were in the process of getting divorced that wore your lovely top and felt sexy and felt great and was like oh my god I'm out with my friends and the you that cried into your pillow and the you that woke up in the morning thinking I'm so anxious and depressed I can't even get downstairs let alone go and buy myself a coffee and the you that was on stage entertaining thousands of people they're all they were all you they were all really properly three-dimensionally you and I think if we can let ourselves sort of let those bits in I know that by my late 40s, trying to only be the glossy version of myself and only be the successful person, I paid a heavy price for that. And I sort of think if we can let ourselves, and particularly women, we put ourselves under so much bloody pressure, you know, if we can just let all those bits in and just be honest enough to go, you know, that the, the social media me, the me you see on stage, life is not like that. Life's really bloody difficult sometimes. I think that is enormously reassuring, especially when you're at that hugely vulnerable point in your life where either you leave someone or they leave you. And that feeling of abandonment and isolation is enormously wrong footing. And I think if we can sort of all share that experience a bit, including the dark moments, that's quite helpful, isn't it? To people to be given permission to go through it in whatever way they need to. Um, and, and those moments when you're on your knees with grief don't mean you won't get back up again and be awesome in a few hours, you know, that, that they you won't always be collapsed. You will stand up again. I think that's the bit I wish someone had told me so that I dared collapse. So yeah, that was a that was a very existential little speech there, wasn't it? No, oh, I love it. Callie, thank you. This has been great. And and also really enlightening for me, you know, coming from things from a marriage divorce perspective. I think it's really nice to speak to someone who has had so many similar experiences, but doesn't, you know, it's not under that label and the piece of paper doesn't mean that you're not very welcome in the divorce club I like to belong I've always thought I don't really belong and it's lovely to belong to this club thank you (laughs) 
Yeah, you're in our club. Um, Is there anything to finish that you would say to anyone listening who can particularly relate to what you've been through or maybe they're in that difficult place right now where they've just broken up with someone and everyone's assuming they were married and um, they don't really know what to to do in this breakup kind of post long-term relationship world I think it's probably two things one of them is to just be really kind to yourself even if your reaction wasn't optimal at the time so if you do end up like doing something you're snapping at someone or doing whatever that you think I really wish I hadn't done that to just be extremely generous to yourself as to how you're responding but the other thing does probably tie into the vulnerability thing which is that allowing yourself the moments of collapse or devastation or grief you know it it is a proper bereavement anyone going through this is is going through proper serious loss and um, allowing yourself to know that it is a sort of cycle and so that when you when you either sort of collapse or feel devastated or literally can't cannot do much you know get rendered inert with grief that's not that doesn't preclude you also being resilient you can be extremely resilient and still feel like that so it's not weakness it's all part of the process of being strong enough so if there's one thing and I say it to my daughter now if there's one thing I wish someone had said to me when I was much younger is we are actually incredibly resilient but that doesn't mean we have to act tough all the time and part of resilience comes from letting that in so I guess what I would say is if anyone's at the crying into their pillow think I'll never meet anyone again think I'm horrible and ugly that doesn't mean you're not resilient or that you're doing something wrong you know you're resilient is whirring away and it will get you through it so I guess yeah we are all you know we're all still standing even though at times we don't know if we can so I think it's probably just having the confidence that that all those different bits of it that feel jagged and ugly and horrible are part of getting ourselves okay again and we we are all fundamentally still okay you know that the world will keep turning with us on it so yeah that's that's what I would say. Great advice. Thanks. Uh, where can people find you online and book you as a speaker and comedian? Well, mainly they can find me at home uh, unemployed. Uh, but anyone who wants to, so I am at Callie Beaton Comedian on Instagram and I am at Callie Beaton on Twitter. And um, I get loads of my corporate bookings through JLA. So if anyone Googles JLA Callie Beaton, they will see uh, my uh, my profile as a speaker and my business history as well. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and we share management, I believe, don't we? We have the same management, the lovely Hannah Layton. So Hannah will tout me out for anything. Contact Hannah Layton. She'd probably tout us out as a double act, <laughs> wouldn't she? Give her a fiver. She'll come up with something we can do. We could talk about our breakups on stage just to get. We could just cry together on oh, stage. that's not a problem to me. Or cry together anywhere. <laughs> just cry together in, a, in yeah. a socially distanced garden shed would be a nice use of an afternoon. Wonderful. Yeah. Let's definitely plan sure. that out. Callie, thank you very much. Oh, hi. Thank you for listening to The Divorce Social with me, Samantha Baines. Please leave us a review. Please, please. Um, It would be super nice. They're lovely to read. They keep me cheery and happy and keep me going. Uh, But also it affects our listing in the podcast charts, uh, which are very important because that's how more people find the podcast. And I'd love to help more people get through those really tough heartbreak and divorce times. And they're more likely to find us if we're higher up on the charts. So if you'd like to leave a review, I'd love you forever. You can leave them on iTunes is the big one or most podcast platforms do them as well. I'll take all the reviews you've got to give. You can also uh, get in contact on Twitter 
and Instagram at DivorcePod and at Samantha Baines. We have a website, thedivorcesocial.com, and we have a Patreon account, which means that you can support the podcast for as little as £2 a month. And it helps me with all the admin costs. It also means you have access to our 90s-style divorce and heartbreak chat room. And there's lots of exclusives on there, little bits of audio that you don't get in the main podcast, and some giveaways as well. So I'd love to see you over on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Samantha Baines. And please leave a review. Did I say that already? Please leave a review. Love you forever.